A few years ago, Pastor Russ came into my office and he said, Dave, have you ever heard of Trinitarian worship? And I said, no, tell me about that. And what he said to me was so fascinating, I thought I'd share it with you only five years later. God the Father is represented by mainline churches. So think Anglican, think Lutheran, think Catholic, where the emphasis is on the sacraments and taking the Lord's Supper at the end of the service. They still sing, they still have scripture reading, they still have a message, but the emphasis, the reason most people go is because they love taking the Lord's Supper at the end. The evangelical church is um, God the Son, and that's what we are. So think Baptist churches, Alliance churches, Church of God, evangelical free. And the focus, the emphasis is really on the spoken word, right? We sing songs, but really there's a big emphasis, half the service is on the message itself. And then you have God the Spirit. That's represented by the charismatic churches. So um, Pentecostal churches, apostolic churches, vineyard churches, um, many of the non-denominational churches in our city are charismatic as well. So you'd have like Evolve or Celebration or Christ City. And the emphasis here is on the charismatic gifts. And so maybe there's prophecy in the middle of their service or people are speaking in tongues or there's a more exuberant worship set or whatever the case might be. Now, I'm obviously speaking in generalizations. I know an Anglican church where they have 30-minute sermons just like we do. I know Alliance churches that are quite charismatic in their worship. But generally, this is how it works. Uh, before I was in Ellerslie, I was in a small town called Alberta Beach. And the Alliance church there was the only church in town. But there was a Lutheran church outside of town. One of my friends named Warren attended the Lutheran church, and, and he would show up regularly. He'd come to our prayer meetings, he'd come to our small groups, he'd come to special events, and occasionally on Sunday mornings. And eventually I said, Warren, why don't you just come here all the time? Like, you have some good friends here, you seem to really enjoy what we're doing. And he said, Dave, the reason I go to church is I love taking the Lord's Supper every single week. Now, I think when we think of this big idea of Trinitarian worship, we can learn from one another. There's something really special about that, that holy moment, that sacrament where we take the Lord's Supper together. There's something about listening to a well-crafted sermon where you go, I appreciate what the pastor did there. And there's something with our charismatic friends where we go, man, I wish everybody had that joy and exuberance when they gather together for worship. A number of years ago, I was at a pastor's conference, and I had been attending for uh, a number of years, and I hadn't really thought much of what was taking place, but normally when the, the pastors would gather together, there'd be a tremendous worship team. It wasn't just like one worship pastor, it was all the worship pastors of the local churches would gather together and lead in worship. It was incredibly well done. And one year, somebody leaned over to me and said, hey, notice how many people are singing and how many people just keep talking. And I looked around, and maybe 50% of the people were singing, maybe a little bit more, but most people were treating it like it was a break, and they were connecting with old friends, they were chatting, they were talking about what was going on. And the person said, why aren't we putting up more emphasis on singing? That stuck with me for a number of years. And I'm not perfect, I still kind of wrestle with, well, is it better for me to wait and introduce myself to newcomers who come in, or should I be here right at the beginning of every worship service? Or sometimes I come in a little bit late because I'm out in the foyer and I give people fist bumps. Is that a little bit distracting? Or sometimes I just need to whisper to Pastor Joel and make sure we got our cues right. So what do you do with that? Now you might be listening right now and go, Dave, worship as song, like of course we do this. You're, you're, quite literally preaching to the choir here. We're singing every week, why is it important? But I think that's exactly why we need to talk about it, because it is so important. How does singing reveal to our own hearts and minds the privilege that we have of singing to a great and glorious king? Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, thank you um, for the people who many years ago put together our values. And when we think about transforming gospel and we think about courageous community and we think about inescapable mission, and for these six weeks, we think about what it means to give ourselves over to generous worship, where we give all of ourselves to all of God. And God, as we talk about singing, may it be fresh, may it be insightful, may it help us recognize what we do when we lift our voices in song together. So God, we pray that my words would fall down so that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to each one of us what we need to hear most this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles with you, we are in Exodus 15, Exodus chapter 15. If you've been here for more than a year, you know that we went through Exodus last fall, but now we're not just looking at the big picture, we're zeroing in on a specific chapter. If you're brand new to church, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Of course, you can download the app as well. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, so it goes Genesis, then Exodus. Big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers, but allow me to spend the first few minutes unpacking what's going on. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, we find the nation of Israel under captivity to the Egyptians. It's been 400 years. This is no short length of time. And the Egyptians are making the Israelites' lives miserable. They are working them to the bone. Uh, Most people thought it was north of 10 hours a day, probably closer to 14, seven days a week, no breaks. And so the Israelites cry out to God, God, if you're out there, God, if you're listening, send us a savior, send us someone to rescue us. And God answers their prayer. And he sends them a baby named Moses. At the exact same time, Pharaoh recognizes, man, these Israelites, they are growing like rabbits. We need to stop this. And so he actually puts out an edict that any Israelite male under the age of two should be put to death. And so Moses' parents are understandably quite concerned. And so they hide him for the first three months of his life. And then they put him in a wicker basket and kind of push him down the river so that he ends up at Pharaoh's daughter's um, bathing area. So Pharaoh's daughter takes this Israelite baby into her home and raises him for the next number of years. Now, Moses quickly realizes, I'm not Egyptian. I'm of Israelite descent. And he cares deeply for what's happening to the Israelite people. And one day, he's about 40 years old. He goes out and he sees what's taking place. And he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite. And he looks both ways. He recognizes nobody's watching him. And so he strikes the Egyptian, kills him, buries him in the sand. He's thinking, well, maybe no one will find out. But Pharaoh finds out. And so Moses thinks, I'm out of here. And he runs into the barren wasteland. And so quite early on in the book of Exodus, we see this movement take place. We see Moses, who's born an an Israelite, is raised in an Egyptian palace and then goes out into a barren wasteland in the wilderness. He's out there for another 30, probably 40 years. And one day, God shows up to him in a burning bush and says, I want you to go back into Egypt and I want you to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And that goes over about as well as my kids asking for a movie on a school night. Pharaoh looks at them and says, uh, no, not going to happen. And so Moses says, well, well, God, now what do I do? And God says, allow me to roll up my sleeves. I'm going to get to work and I'm going to send plague after plague after plague upon these Egyptians. And so he starts by turning the river into blood. And then he sends frogs and gnats and flies. And then he kills their livestock. And the people have boils. And then there's darkness over the land. And over and over and over again, Pharaoh says, I am not letting my slaves go. And there's a 10th and final plague. And Pharaoh finds out that uh, if 
pardon me, the Israelites find out that if they take the blood of a lamb and put it on the door frames of their home, that the angel of death will pass over the Israelites, but will kill the firstborn of every Egyptian. On the night this is to take place, there is weeping and wailing among the Egyptians, and Pharaoh summons Moses and says, enough, go, get out of here, be gone with you. And so the Israelites get up and leave Egypt, and then they get caught between the Red Sea and Pharaoh, who has now changed his mind and is chasing them down with his army. And in Exodus chapter 14, we get to the Israelites standing at the Red Sea going, what do we do now? And so God, yet another miracle, puts one side of the river uh, to the sea wall of water, the other side a wall of water, and the Israelites pass through. But as the Egyptians chase them, the water comes tumbling down, killing all of Pharaoh's army. The very next chapter, Exodus chapter 15, the Israelites start singing. We read this at the end of chapter 14. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They respond with song. If you enjoy taking notes, the first part of our outline, the purpose of singing. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, sing this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Outside of an obscure reference in Genesis chapter 31, this is the first reference of singing in the entire Bible, and it couldn't come at a more opportune place. The Israelites have just been saved from slavery. But that doesn't answer the question, why? Why are they singing? What's the purpose of singing? Outside of concerts and maybe the beginning of an Oilers or an Elks game when we sing the national anthem, where do we sing together? We don't do it normally. Three thoughts on why we sing. Remember the truth about God. The exodus for the Israelites is equivalent to the resurrection for Christians. This is a monumental event. You need to hear that again. The exodus for the Israelites is equivalent to the resurrection for Christians, what do I mean by that? Think about the uh, similarities that are taking place. The Israelites are enslaved by Egypt. There is no way out until the blood of the lamb is put on the cross above the door frames of their homes. The death of the firstborn brings freedom. For humanity, we're enslaved to sin and death. There's no way out until the blood of the lamb is put over the door frames of our homes, of our hearts. The death of God's firstborn son and all who believe are given freedom. Pastor Philip Ryken says it like this, the history of salvation is described as a drama. But maybe it's closer to a musical as it's impossible to conceive Christianity without songs of praise. The Israelites have just been saved from slavery. And so what do they do? They sing. In Judges chapter five, we have Deborah and Barak who have just defeated uh, an enemy of Israel. So what do they do? They sing. Half of the entire Psalms, King David uh, has been singing songs of praise and worship. He's also been singing songs of sorrow and repentance. The 12 disciples, after the Last Supper, go out with Jesus. They sing a hymn. The Apostle Paul has a worship concert in prison. The early church singing the Christ hymn that we looked at last week, singing the Apostle Creed. They sing all the time, reminding us about who God is and what he's done. At funerals, we sing Amazing Grace. 
We sing, it is well with my soul. We sing, it'll fly away. At Christmas, we sing, hark the herald angels sing, and O come, O come, Emmanuel, to remind us who God is and what he's done. This past week, my seven-year-old saw something on YouTube or TV or something that, that really scared him. I don't know what he's saying. He didn't even want to talk about it. And so I'm putting him to bed one night, and he says, Dad, can you pray that my mind would not be bothered by what I saw earlier? And we pray together, and he goes, Dad, I'm, I'm still scared. What do I do? And so I took up my phone, I popped on YouTube, and there's this song that's called Surrendered or Fight My Battles. And it has this common refrain where it says, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. Just this reminder of who God is and what he's done. And my son was asleep in minutes, and that never happens. Singing helps us remember the truth about God. It also brings thoughts and feelings together. How many times do you put on the radio in your car or you're listening to something through Wi-Fi or you cook or you're doing chores, you're picking something on YouTube and you just go, I love this song. And especially if it's not the radio, especially if you're choosing it yourself on your Spotify account or whatever your favorite thing is on your playlist and you just go, I love what's happening here. The book of Exodus is originally written in Hebrew, so we don't necessarily get the cadence and the rhyming that's taking place. In my study this past week, I stumbled onto the poet Thomas More, who captures the exuberance. Listen to this. Sound the loud timbrel o'er Egypt's dark sea. Jehovah has triumphed. His people are free. Sing, for the pride of the tyrant is broken. His chariots, his horsemen, all splendid and brave. How vain was their boast, but the Lord hath but spoken. And chariots and horsemen are sunk in the wave. Sound the loud timbrel or Egypt's dark sea. Jehovah had triumphed. His people are free. It's reminding us who God is and what he's done. It's bringing our thoughts and feelings together into something beautiful. This uh, service is a little bit younger than the first service. So maybe you can resonate with this a bit more. How many of you, I'm not looking for a show of hands, had a breakup CD? Right? When you're a young adult, your heart's been broken, and I go, well, I guess I got to put on some more dashboard confessional because life is rough right now. Or you're heading off to sports and you're listening to Queen because you need to remind yourself that we are going to rock our opponents or, or the eye of the tiger or thunderstruck because I'm going to get jacked up for this soccer game. When we gather together for worship, we're reminded of who God is and what he's done. But it also brings together the theology that we know about God, the feelings together, into something beautiful. Final thought on the purpose of singing is the importance of communal activity. If you take another look at the opening verse of chapter 15, it says, Moses and his people of Israel sang the song to the Lord. And you get to see how this all comes together. And singing together, we engage in a communal activity that reminds us of who God is and what he's done bringing our thoughts and our feelings together. My sister-in-law is a registered psychologist, and my wife was telling me, oh, you should talk to Erin. Uh, she took a whole course on the psychology of music. So I called my sister-in-law, and this is one of the things she said to me. Singing is a way to access the ventral vagal part of your nervous system, and listen to this next part, which supports connection with others, a sense of safety, and relaxation. I love the modern day songs. 
the song that Colton started our worship service with today. I had never heard it before, and already I'm excited. I think we're going to sing it again after the message. You get excited about what's happening. On the way to uh, church this morning, I put on uh, two very new songs. I wanted to sing and lift up my voice in song, but there's something else about the songs that have been sung for hundreds of years where the congregation comes together and says, I remember from growing up that beautiful hymn, How Great Thou Art, or Come Thou Fount, or what we sang just a few minutes ago in the doxology. And we lift up our voices together, reminding ourselves of how great God is. C.S. Lewis is one of the great Christian minds of the 20th century. But he realized, as, as gifted as my mind might be, I can't go about this alone. This is a little bit of a longer quote. He writes, when I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought that I could do it all on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology. I wouldn't go to churches or gospel halls. I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. But as I went, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education, and then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which are just sixth-rate music, he likes to repeat himself, were nonetheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. We do this together. Why do we sing? We remember who God is and what he's done. It brings our thoughts and our feelings together, and it's a communal activity. So that's the purpose of singing. What about the practice? What does this look like? Over the series of generous worship, we said we were going to do things a little bit differently. If you're thinking the sermon seems a little bit early, we're not going to just have one closing song. We're going to have a couple closing songs in response to a message on singing. But we also want to do some things that are a little bit unique. And so I'm going to ask you to stand. You're not going to read along with me, although the, message, uh, the passage will be on the screen behind me. But why don't you stand with me as we read the entirety of Moses' song. My friends, this is the word of God. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Felicia. These are enemies they're about to encounter. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. 
terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. The moment that they escaped the tyranny of Egypt, the moment they knew the enemy is dead, they worshiped. It would begin a new habit, a new practice for the nation of Israel. We are going to be a people who sing. One of the authors I read in preparation for this message is James Smith, and he wrote a book called You Are What You Love. And he has this great line where he says, our habits create our hungers. Our habits create our hungers. There's a lot of power in those five words. Think about this. It's a weeknight, it's Monday night, it's 8.30, you've put the kids to bed or whatever the case might be. You turn on Netflix and you grab junk food and your habits create your hungers. Because you realize every weeknight at about 8.30 or 9 o'clock you turn on Netflix and you eat junk food. There's other habits as well. They might be good, they might be bad. Maybe you enjoy going on a walk and as soon as you finish supper, you think to yourself, oh, I'm gonna clean up and I'm looking forward to going on this walk. Or the next morning you think, I look forward to grabbing a cup of coffee in my Bible in hand because every morning I have my cup of coffee in my Bible in hand. Or you think, I love uh, having that one hour lunch break because it allows me to go to the gym for a quick 30 minute workout and I look forward to that to separate the morning and the afternoon. And I think this is what made COVID really difficult for so many of us because our habits are all messed up. For many of us, our habit was coming to church. And if your habit was coming to church at least three times a month, if not every single week, suddenly that was taken away from us and we didn't know how to respond. For others of us, we would come maybe one or two times a month and you would go, well, now that COVID's here, I don't know if I really need church. And I'm gonna meet with friends a little bit or I'm gonna go and play golf a little bit or I'm going to do something. And then still for others of us, we had never gone to church. And there's this desire, this longing, this spiritual drawing that I think I need something more than what this world has to offer. And then for some of us that we recognize there is this practice, this habit of a long obedience in the same direction. For those of you who've been attending Ellerslie for longer than 15 years, um, you recognize that over the last decade and a half, you've had five lead pastors. That's a lot. But you recognize, I'm going to continue coming even though things are changing fairly rapidly. You had Ed Stuckey for 25 years in this beautiful ministry and that was wonderful and awesome. And then the next pastor comes and he splits the church and it's devastating and terrible. But the practice is to keep coming. The next two pastors bring hope and healing, clarity and direction. And then you hire one of the youngest lead pastors you've had in the history of your church and you hope something is going to change. James Smith continues, Christian worship is the feast where we acquire these new hungers. And so when you come to church and when you expect to meet with God and you expect to meet with people, you recognize there's something really special that's taking place here. As an evangelical, I grew up thinking I'm looking forward to the message. And maybe some of you are like me where it's just, well, the music is just something to get through before we get to the meat and why we're really here. But as an evangelical, I married a charismatic. And she quickly taught me, Dave, that's not how this works. And she recognized that 
by entering into the worship service, by expecting to meet with God, something is going to change. Your heart is going to be transformed. And this is where we can learn from one another across the wide variety of Christendom. In the practice of singing, there is a holy expectation. I'm a big sports fan. And right now, the NFL isn't fair because Patrick Mahomes is way better than any other quarterback. And he beat my team in the Super Bowl, so I'm still a little bit bitter about this. But if you don't know anything about the NFL, that's okay. Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback. He's phenomenal. He was born and raised in Texas. He went to Texas Tech University. Now he plays for the Kansas City Chiefs, which is a Midwestern team. And about a year ago, the NFL mic'd him up while this um, tech guy from Texas was playing in the brutally cold winter of Green Bay. And it was fascinating listening to him on TV because he kept saying this constant refrain over and over again. He goes, I love playing in the cold. I'm the best cold weather quarterback this league has ever seen. I never lose in the cold. Aaron Rodgers ain't going to beat me. I'm a cold weather quarterback. And I'm thinking, this is an incredible mindset. Maybe you're a little bit like me. And maybe showing up to church, you think, well, if I come five or ten minutes late, I'll miss the first song or two and it won't be a big deal. Change your mindset. I love singing. I love when the band comes up and plays their heart out. I love listening to the old hymns. I love listening to the contemporary music. I love gathering together with a group of people and lifting my voice up to a great and glorious king. He deserves it. And the practice of singing impacts our posture of singing. Look at the last two verses of this passage, starting in verse 20. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. If you have your Bibles in front of you, look at verse 1, look at verse 21, word for word, identical. Absolutely the same. They sang this song over and over and over again, reminding themselves of the greatness of God, reminding themselves of what he has done. This isn't just people folding their arms and begrudgingly singing a couple hymns. This is a group of people who remembered who God is and he's worthy of their praise. And we think about all the different postures that we find in worship. We find people lying prostrate, standing, kneeling, lifting hands, clapping, lifting the head, bowing the head, dancing, wearing sackcloth and ashes. Our posture reflects our heart. Now, some people might say, well, Dave, the, the really conservative people, they go to mainline churches, and we're just kind of middle of the road, so we go to the evangelical churches, and the charismatic people will go to the charismatic churches. I don't think that's true. Think about this next quote. Posture isn't as much about our own personality as much as it is about what type of worship God deserves. It's not about our personality, but what type of worship does God deserve? Political views aside... Whatever you think of King Charles, how would you respond if you were in his throne room? If you were one of a dozen people who were allowed to meet King Charles for whatever reason, you've done something wonderful for England. If you were waiting in his throne room, his presence would be announced and you would stand up. Men, we'd give a short bow. Women, a small curtsy. You would greet him as your majesty. Hey, not Chuck. Good to meet you, buddy. You wouldn't do that. How much more the king of the universe, 
How much more does he deserve our worship and our praise? How much more the God of the universe who sacrifices one and only son so we might be saved? How much more the king of the universe, Jesus Christ himself, who came on a rescue mission so that we might spend eternity with him? How much more Jesus, who uses earth as his footstool, does he deserve our praise? In the Old Testament, when they worshiped, they brought something with them. Sometimes it was money like we do today, but most often it was an animal to sacrifice or the new harvest from their crop, fruits or vegetables. The author of Hebrews closes his letter. Hebrews is a New Testament book and he says this, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We give him our best. But maybe you have questions. Well, Dave, what if I don't feel like singing? What if I don't know the song? What if I don't like the song? What if I don't want to sing? What if it's just emotionalism and I don't believe in emotionalism? I just want to come and think with my head. Let's tackle that. There are going to be days where you don't like the music. There are going to be days where you say, well, I like that other song, not this song. Or I know that song, but I don't like the way we're doing it. Who cares? I'm willing to bet that there's days that you don't want to go to work. I'm willing to bet that there's days you're invited to special events or family events and you're thinking like, I wish I had a colonoscopy on that day because I don't want to go to that. It's not hypocrisy to do something you don't want to do. It's maturity. Because sometimes we go to work when we don't feel like going to work. We go to school when we don't feel like going to school. We go to a special event because we know it's important to go to that special event. Pastor Joel and I pray together every Sunday morning. And back in the spring, I said to Joel, pray for my attitude. I said, everything's fine at home. It was a fine week, nothing out of the ordinary. I just woke up on the wrong side of bed. And Joel said, well, you got to preach in 30 minutes, so figure that one out. <laughs> what about emotionalism? What about if, well, Dave, it's just emotional music. I read this testimony this past week. A lady was serving at a local health clinic in Africa, and she was deeply moved by the African women who were singing. And she was almost brought to tears. And so she talked to the lady who was overseeing the, the mission work, and she said, tell me, what are the words these African women are singing? And she goes, sure. They're saying, if you boil the water, you won't get dysentery. <laughs> and suddenly, it's not what they expected at all. Music is emotional. Listening to hard rock is different than what you're going to listen to at a funeral, is different than Christmas music, is different than what you would listen to in your car. But when we come on Sunday mornings, it's not emotionalism. It's lifting up our voices in worship and praise of the king who deserves it most. Do you know how you can tell the difference between a charismatic Baptist and a regular Baptist? The charismatic Baptist worships with his hand outside of his pocket. No, does. No. Dave, work on your jokes. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and join me on the stage. And I'm going to invite the prayer team to come down as well. We may not change in the blink of an eye. We're not going to go from crossing our arms to dancing that we read about in 2 Samuel 6 and David coming back in front of the people. But I'm going to ask that there be a small change. And maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, Dave, I don't normally sing. That's okay. Today, just start. 
Just sing. Colton, how many songs? You got two or three? Two and a half. We got two and a half songs. Sing. If you're the type of person who normally sits there with their arms crossed or their hands in the pocket, unfold your arms. Take your hands out from your pocket. Maybe you're going to play drums on the pew in front of you. Maybe you're already doing that. Maybe it's a little bit of a posture where you just say, God, here I am. Here's my hands. Maybe you lift your hands up and you say, I'm just going to try this. We worship a great and holy king. It's an opportunity to be reminded of who God is and what he's done. To engage our thoughts and our feelings together. To encounter what the other saints are doing all around you in communal activity of worshiping a holy God. How does it point to Jesus? We worship the king of the universe. And we have the privilege of lifting up our voices in song, of having the right posture, of being in the right practice, of understanding this is why we sing, to gather together as a family of believers from different backgrounds, from different stages of life to say, God, you deserve this more than anything else. This is about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this sermon series. Thank you for the value of generous worship. May we be a church that worships you together. May we worship you through listening to the spoken word. May we worship you by song. May we worship you by the giving of our tithes and offerings. Worship you in fellowship afterwards. Worship you through communion. Worship you through praying at the front. May we worship you with our heart, our head, and our hands wide open. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.